Thank you, Tim, for that prayer supplication. And I'm so grateful that you're each, each of you are here today participating in worship together and are poised to hear the word of God proclaimed. And we have an outline coming your way just in a moment from our helpers. I can't remember. Let's see. I, was, I, I know he, he was a musician with a famous group that traveled around, but I think he played piano. But he told this story. Um, and those of you with young children can certainly relate. He said his, his little boy had been invited to uh, play the role of Jesus in the church's Easter pageant. And so anyway, during, during the, the, the uh, play and the uh, reenactment of the uh, crucifixion, they got to the resurrection on Easter Sunday morning, uh, that the angel came and rolled the stone away from the, the tomb and... Uh, and so everybody was waiting with you know, great anticipation what's going to happen next. Everybody knew, but they waited for the actor to come out dressed in his Jesus garb. And the darkness of the tomb was pronounced there as the spotlight was on the tomb. And, and so they waited. And father was, this father was saying he was getting nervous because th there was the delay. Jesus wasn't coming out of the tomb as he had been told to do. But anyway, finally... He says, after what appeared to be an eternity, that uh, finally this little boy, little boy's voice booms out of the, the, the darkness of that tomb with enthusiasm. He says, ready or not, here I come. And says, at that, the little boy bound out of the grave, the tomb, and ta-da! Well, I, I know we've been talking about the Lord's coming. The Lord has been talking about this. As you turn in your, in your Bibles to the gospel, uh, of Luke in chapter 18, and we'll be picking up there in, in verse 9. But but prior to this, in chapter 17, Jesus has been talking about uh, his coming again, his parousia, when he'll return to the earth to bring God's judgment upon all unrepentant sin and, and then to usher in the kingdom of God. And, you know, of course, he, he makes it clear this is not going to happen just right away. There's a pause. But his warning to his disciples in Matthew 24, the parallel version of this text in the Olivet Discourse, discourse Jesus gives a, a very clear warning to his disciples in, in Matthew 24:44. He says, therefore, you also be ready. For the Son of Man comes at an hour that you do not expect. And as Jesus has been teaching this and he's teaching it to his disciples and preparing them for what lies ahead. And yet as we examine this, we're looking at yet another parable. Last time that I, that I brought a mess, last message I preached was also here in Luke 18, but it was, uh, was verses one through eight. And, and Jesus is using these two back-to-back -back parables to teach valuable lessons uh, related to the coming kingdom of God. And, and in these parables, Jesus has given us opportunities to see the characteristics and qualities that ought to manifest themselves in God's people who are waiting for the coming of Christ, for his second coming. And in that first parable, I'll just recap very quickly, the parable that we know of as the persistent widow who was appealing to this very, you know, unrighteous, uh, ungodly judge, a secular judge, 
who, who didn't fear God and nor did he regard man. So that gives you an idea of the kind of character. And yet Jesus is telling in that parable how we as God's people anticipating his return, that we should be praying and praying persistently. And he's already told us in the model prayer, you may recall, Jesus says, this is the way that you pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. And, and so using the illustration of the widow, he's saying as she was appealing to this unjust judge to, to get justice for herself, she came time after time after time after time and eventually wore him down. So the contrast is between loving and patient and kind and, and God, uh, uh, a holy God and this unrighteous judge and how this woman eventually wore this judge down by her persistent pleas. Jesus is, is saying that for you and me, knowing that he's coming again, that we, we ought to constantly be in prayer and asking the Lord to, to come. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And so now as Jesus is moving forward in this teaching discourse, as he moves into the next parable, beginning in chapter 9 or chapter 18, verse 9, Luke 18, verse 9. It says, and he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. I think that's pretty clear who's talking about. How do you spell Pharisee? Before, before we, however, dismiss this sin of self-righteousness to the first century Jewish leaders, I think we ought to consider the host of people living now in the 21st century with the same eternally flawed, fatal attitude as the Pharisees. Basically thinking, you know, I'm okay. I'm not I'm not a bad person. I, I haven't stolen. I haven't killed, you know. And, and so I'm a basically moral person. So in God's eyes, I'm okay. And how dangerous that can be. Because one day they will stand before the God who is holy and righteous and Jesus on that throne, great white throne of judgment, and they will be judged. So as we look at this parable, and it's a familiar parable, we call it the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, Pharisee and the, and the publican. As I, as I just read, you know, Jesus sets the stage there in verse 9 of chapter 18. He says, also he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. And he goes on. Two men went up to the temple, which is common in that day. People went up the the, 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 the mountainside up to uh, up Mount Zion, up to the temple to offer prayer either at nine in the morning, three in the afternoon. Just so happened these two men showed up there at the temple in this fictional story. They both are coming to pray. And in verse 11, Jesus said, the Pharisee stood and prayed thus with, them, with himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men extortioners, unjust, adulterers, and even this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I, gave, I give tithes of all that I possess. What I want you to see as we look into this parable from different angles is, is what Jesus is teaching us about what ought to be our 
attitude? What ought to be our mindset? What ought to be our character as God's people? And so as we look at the Pharisee, you know, this legalistic scholar of the law of God positioned himself, no doubt, in a noticeable area, a spot to be noticed, not so much by God, but by people. Because that was his goal. As he's standing there in the temple complex, uh, and, and one scholar that I was reading about this said, no doubt this Pharisee probably made his way up as close to the Holy of Holies as he could. So as to, to simply suggest by his proximity to that, that holy area of the temple that, that he, was, he was right with God, that he was tight with God. So as to give that impression, Jesus had told, told his disciples earlier in Matthew chapter 6, verse 5, he says, And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, speaking of the Pharisees, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues, or at the temple in this case, and on the corners of the streets, that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. They're more interested in people seeing them and being impressed by them I know that's not a problem for any of you when you come to church. You're not so concerned about who's going to see you and how they think of you and what they think of what you're wearing and how you're styling your hair and, how, you know, car, the car you drove in. Oh, no. We want to be noticed by God. And so I think it's interesting, as one commentary said, look at the contrast there between the proximity of the two men. Here's this Pharisee. He's up front and center and, and, and looking right proud. And, and then there's the tax collector who is off at a distance. Sometimes I think we can deceive ourselves by what we perceive to be close proximity to God. Maybe because you think, okay, my name is on church roll. Oh, my parents, my grandparents have been Christians all their lives. I've, I've given to this cause. I give to that cause. Therefore, surely, you know, people see me as being one who's close to God. But in actuality, does your life reflect that? Do the priorities of your life reflect that proximity to God? How much does God see that pleases him? As I said, in contrast, as we look at the, the, the tax collector, the publican there, in verse 13, and the tax collector standing afar off. If you can imagine that massive court where all the prayer warriors or prayers were assembled, and there's a Pharisee up close and, and, and personal near the Holy of Holies and probably on the very fringes of that crowd was this tax collector as if he didn't want to get close. He didn't want people to see him. He, he didn't feel worthy. He knew the sins in his life. He knew how unrighteous he was compared to holy and righteous God. And I appreciate that point, Brother Mark, you brought out in our Christian growth group lesson talking about the Great Commission and worship. And, and the essence of worship is us coming into the sanctuary, into the presence of God. And first and foremost, acknowledging the holiness of God. Who is this God that we assemble ourselves before? He is the Almighty, He is the Eternal, He is the Sovereign. Righteous God of all. And yet sometimes I'm afraid we are so caught up in ourselves, we just kind of saunter on in as if we're doing God a favor. Are we aware of the fact 
that apart from the grace of God, we're wretched, sinners, lost, condemned. There that, there that, that uh, publican had a sense of God's awesomeness and his holiness, and, and he couldn't approach God. You may recall in Luke chapter 5, verse 8, when Jesus recruited Peter's fishing boat to preach from and to teach from. And after he finished his sermon, he told Peter, fisherman, he said, let's go fishing in modern terminology. Peter, trying to be polite, said, Lord, we've fished all night long. Ain't caught a thing. I can identify. Except I fish in the daytime. But if you say so, we'll go. And Jesus said, cast your net over here. They cast the nets, and lo and behold, the biggest catch anybody had ever seen. The nets were swelling and beginning to break. They could hardly pull the fish over to the boats. The boats began to sink. And immediately, Peter, Simon Peter, understood something. For the first time in his life, he was in the presence of holiness. Depart from me, Lord. I'm a sinner. And that's this tax collector. He didn't even come close. You see, where a sinful pride can deceive us into a false sense of spiritual arrogance, a genuinely humble spirit, a genuinely humble spirit may not position us to be noticed by people. If you're truly humble, and you're seeking to please God, other people may not notice you. You may not get all the attention. You may not get all the accolades of praise or whatever. That's not what's important. The thing is that you understand that God notices you when he sees that kind of humility in your life. As we go on and we continue to examine these two contrasts, and Jesus uses the technique of contrast to, 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 to make even more evident the point of his message. In addition to the proximity of the two men, let's consider the posture of the two men, the Pharisee, He's a religious leader, and, and as somebody would say, he's a legend in his own mind. Oh, he's somebody he struts in like a peacock into the temple court, and he's feeling mighty good about himself. He stands up there, and I can only imagine how he must look in his regal robes as he's standing there, and everybody's got their eyes riveted on him, kind of hunching each other. Oh, yeah, yeah, look, Pharisee. He's probably standing there with his chest out and his chin up and his nose up and, and pointed up into the air. Standing there as if he's doing God a favor. Oh, listen, he probably attracted the admiration of many people in the crowd that day. He probably said, ooh, what it must be to be a Pharisee. God's right hand man right there. What it must be. He probably had forgotten. The scripture says God resists the proud. And it gives grace to the humble. God resists the proud. But it gives grace to the humble. You see that biblical principle played out before us in this wonderful parable. So as we talk about the posture of the two men, we saw the Pharisee. But what about this publican, this tax collector? Jesus doesn't miss details, folks. Details are there for a purpose. And so as we go back to that verse 13 and consider the tax collector, he's standing afar off. He would not so much as, as raise his eyes to heaven. He can't even look up. Well, 
when I stood before my dad, when I knew I'd committed some wrong and judgment was pending, I can recall sometimes just being so afraid. I just couldn't even look up at him and say, you know, Dad, I did this. Here's this, this publican. He's, he's, he's loaded with the, the weight of his sinfulness. He can't even raise his eyes up towards heaven, so burdened by his own sinfulness against holy and righteous God. He's overwhelmed with guilt and shame. And did you notice what, what Jesus said he did? He began to beat his chest. It was not uncommon in Jewish culture for somebody to cover their chest and look down as a gesture of being distraught and humble. But he's beating his chest. I thought it was interesting. Luke tells us later in, in chapter 23, verse 48, at the crucifixion of Christ, when it was said and done, there in Luke 23, 48, it says, and seeing what had just happened, or what had been done, many were leaving, beating their chest. Could it be in that moment that they understood for the first time this man who hung on the cross was no ordinary man? Like the Roman centurion, could they have realized? Surely he was the Son of God. This is not a very uncommon gesture, but certainly. It was signaled humility. Well, let's consider also not only the, the proximity and the posture of these two men, but let's consider the prayers of the two men. Prayers reveal a lot. And so we go back to verse 11 and look at the Pharisees. He's standing there. Listen to his prayer. And I think it's interesting. Jesus points out, and he prayed thus with himself. And some translations would say to himself. Are you ever guilty of that? Do you sometimes pray more to yourself than you do to God? Do you brag about yourself? Boast about the accomplishments you've done? Oh, Lord, surely you've watched and seen how I've been so diligent in this and how I've given to that. And, Lord, how faithful I am. Oh, me, oh, my. Well, it's interesting. He was praying to himself, but certainly not to God. He had an audience of one, and that was not God, it was himself. Oh, he was praying to the audience around him, no doubt about it, the people around him. He wanted them to hear, but he wasn't so interested in whether or not God heard. So he's actually boasting about himself and his meticulous legalism. Wow, I mean, my goodness, if I were a Jew in that time period and heard somebody praying like this, you know, oh God, I, I just thank you that I'm not like these other men. You know, the extortioners, the unjust, the adulterers. And he could have gone and on and on, but he noticed in the corner of his eye, oh, a tax collector. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're easy targets. We all hate tax collectors. I'm glad I'm not even like that tax collector. You see, he, made, he makes a mistake that sometimes we do if we're not careful. We try to build ourselves up by pointing out people who are not as, quote, good as we are. Maybe not as faithful as we are, as generous as we are. We, we try to elevate ourselves. Pharisees are excellent at that. 
because they were teachers of the law. They were experts of the law. They could point at themselves and say, who knows the word of God like we do? Who's more meticulous in keeping the, the law than we are? Oh, he's bragging. He's bragging. Oh, he says, I fast twice a week, even though the law required only once a year before the Day of Atonement. Oh, I, twice a week I'm fasting. And you know, when Jesus was ridiculing the Pharisees for the fasting, he says, oh, they do a bang-up job, boy. They they get their hair all messed up. They they get their face all scrunched up and go around looking like gaunt and you know, oh, as if they want to be noticed that they're fasting. He said, Don't even you know, clean yourself up, look good. If you're gonna fast, don't draw attention to yourself. And yet he says, Oh, but I fast twice, uh, twice a week, Lord. I'm 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 really diligent. But also he went on to say there in verse 11, and I give tithes of all that I possess. Not, not all that, that I have but, or earn, but, but everything I get, what, what I have earned, but then whatever I acquire, oh, listen, I go to the nth degree. And the, the Pharisees were known. They were tithe on everything, even the spices. They obviously didn't have spice racks like we have today. But the fact is, every minuscule detail, they wanted to make sure that they covered. He's bragging. Oh, God. Oh, what a wonderful servant of yours I am. Jesus, in contrast, directs us to the, the humble prayer of the publican in verse 13. And the tax collector standing afar off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. You notice the, type, the, 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 the Pharisee never mentioned anything about his sins. He, he, he didn't even offer any petitions. As if he didn't even need God. He's just bragging about himself. In contrast, we see this humble publican, Pharisee, uh, uh, tax collector, and he's crying out, Beating his chest. God, be merciful to me. I, I know I'm a sinner. I don't need recognition. I don't need things. I just need your mercy. Does that ring a bell? Does that take you back in the Old Testament to Psalm 51 when King David, when his sins have been exposed before the people, but more importantly, before God? David cried out in that wonderful prayer of repentance in verse 1, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. I just wonder, as Jesus was putting together this parable, I just wonder if his if his infinite omniscient mind went back some thousand years to that temple in Jerusalem where David stood broken, contrite, and cried out. Listen, who was David praying to? God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Holy Spirit. Jesus may have inserted into the word in the mouth of that humble publican the very words of 
King David, one of the most beautiful prayers of repentance recorded in the scriptures. Tax collector's humble, heartfelt confession and plea for mercy was enough to move the heart of God to, to save him. Justification, not just to forgive him, but to, to save him, to make him right. In stark contrast, the Pharisees' empty, self-centered brag session resulted only in condemnation. I wonder if he had heard maybe Jesus back in, as it recorded in Matthew 7, 21, when, when the Lord said those shocking words, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. So many would say, but Lord, we prophesied in your name. We've worked miracles in your name. And he said, depart from me. I, I don't even know you. I just wonder, as we look at that parable, what does it tell you about you? As I'm preparing, I'm, I'm asking, okay, Lord, reveal. I, I want to be known as being as humble as this tax collector. I want to be known as one seeking your mercy like a, like like. The deer would pant for water. I want to be that person, Lord, but I'm afraid there's some Pharisee that bleeds over me. As I'm waiting for your kingdom to come and realizing that surely one of these days you will come. Lord, am I allowing myself to become a little bit overconfident in who I am as opposed to being absolutely subject to and dependent upon you and your sovereignty and your grace and your mercy? You can imagine that was probably a tough pill for the Pharisees of that day to swallow. But Jesus is teaching in these two parables those characteristics that should present themselves in the lives of his followers as they wait. Those qualities should be there in those who are true followers of Christ. But if that wasn't good enough, to get the point across, Jesus switches as we look out in verse 15. Because we're, Jesus switches from narrative in which he's, he's basically speaking fictional through the parables. He's speaking now to real. And, and uh, I, I rather, I'm sorry, he was speaking from this discourse with the two parables, which are fictional. He's shifted now to that narrative, which is real. This is real time here. This is not pre-recorded. I can use that terminology. Now, all of a sudden, after Jesus finishes the parable, something happens. Because in verse 15, it says, then they, we, we don't know, just a collection of parents also brought infants to him that he might touch them. But when his disciples saw it, they rebuked him, them. Let's stop there for a second because up to this point, the Pharisee has been the culprit. And now all of a sudden, 
I guess before the before the disciples could get too smug, you know, Jesus makes a point with them. He he as these parents are bringing these small children. In in my translation, it says infants. Luke uses it interchangeably. Very small children. And that's for a point. And and we'll notice that the disciples, as these parents are bringing their children to be touched by Jesus, that he might pronounce a blessing upon them. This wasn't a unique experience in that time period because oftentimes parents would seek out a popular rabbi or priest who's well-known. Lay hands on their baby and pray God's blessing upon them. So this was not terribly unusual. However, it's interesting to watch his disciples because it says that his disciples saw it. Here's Jesus teaching, carrying on his ministry, and all these well-meaning people coming up and they're shoving babies in his face. Here's little Junior. Here's little Sweetie. It's... And his disciples are getting perturbed. They see this as, as a rude interruption. They see it as, as, as something that is detracting from Jesus' ministry. But you've got to understand, we have to understand, these Jewish disciples, these followers of Christ, grew up in a Jewish culture. And the mindset of the Jewish culture towards children wasn't very complimentary. Children had no rights and possessions. And certainly when it came to the matter of the kingdom of God, tiny baby is going to know, much less understand the law. How can they keep the law and thus earn their salvation or earn their place in the kingdom of God? How can they live a life of righteousness? They're just babies. They're just crumb crunchers. And the disciples are rebuking not just once, the tense of the verb implies that they were continually pushing people back, pushing people back. Would y'all get these babies out? And so it's ongoing. It's ongoing. They, they think they're doing Jesus a favor. Now, Jesus is going to use a real situation to teach a powerful, powerful lesson. Right on the heels of what he's been telling us about the attitude of God's people. How do we approach the Lord? How do we approach the kingdom of God? Look what Jesus says. And he, he, first of all, he's probably setting his disciples straight. <laughs> but Jesus called them to him and said, I, I think it's more, and I don't want to read it to the word of God, but, but I'm just trying to picture that scenario. Jesus is to send his disciples, run interference from, for him against infants, and, and he's probably got... Hey, guys, cut that out. Stop it. Stop it. And he teaches this. Let the little children come to me. And do not forbid them. For of such, don't miss this, for of such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. It's not the first time that Jesus has taught that in order to enter the kingdom of God, you've got to have childlike faith. 
How is it that an infant, and let me just insert here, because as I looked at the, 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 the writings of the commentaries that I was reading on this, they, they're, they're saying Jesus is, is making a point here that even these tiny babies who are too young to even know the difference of right and wrong certainly have not experienced conviction by the law of God and the holiness of God. So these little babies, Jesus is making the point to say, they have a place, they have a place guaranteed in the kingdom of God. Jesus is speaking of, of young children who have yet to reach the age of accountability. And Jesus says, it's that type of person. A person who comes with no qualifications, no real accomplishments, not riding on their accomplishments, not riding on their degrees, not, not propping up with, with their uh, uh, respect in, in the community and all of that. He said, these are the ones who come into the kingdom of God. Those who are absolutely, totally dependent upon God and upon His grace. You know, it's beautiful how you see in the Old Testament how what Jesus just says there is supported. You look at writers like Job and Jeremiah, certainly King David who lost an infant son and, had, and yet he had confidence that he would see that child again. How did they gain that? Because they had God-given understanding that God had a dispensation of grace for these children who were before the age of accountability. God's grace allowed for them to come into the kingdom of God. This was a radical idea to the common mindset of the Jewish people of Jesus' day, including the disciples. And to the Pharisees, it was downright blasphemous. Blasphemous. For you to suggest that a good upstanding Pharisee like the one that prayed in the temple with all the credentials and accomplishments and meticulous living would not enter the kingdom of God and yet one of these worthless little babies? You can almost see where Jesus is going. You know, as I was reading this episode, it took me back to a couple um, a couple of Sundays ago, we had our parent-child dedication service. And how beautiful it was to see these young couples bringing their beautiful babies. And, you know, and there's not a special dispensation of salvation or whatever. There's simply parents acknowledging the, the massive responsibility of raising and shaping the fashion of life and their appeal to God and the congregation. They dedicated themselves to raise their children up in the, the love and the admonition of the Lord. And that's what these parents are doing. And, and Jesus is giving reassurance to them. Let's just say there was a parent there that day whose baby was a stillborn the next morning. Do you think those words made any difference to them? I promise you. I promise you. They did. Because Jesus had given them assurance. I think about the, the babies that are lost in miscarriage. You know, is there hope? Of course it is. 
They cannot hope that this is given to people who would face that kind of a, a, a tragedy. Heaven forbid, but it does occur. And Jesus is basically saying, they qualified to come into the kingdom of God, not because they're, they're born without sin. They were born under the curse of sin, but God's grace covered that. Now bring that home to yourself. Take away all the sophistications and the accomplishments of your personal life and the things that you've done and achieved, and even for the name of the Lord, and just take all of that. How much of it is going to get you into the kingdom of God? Now, and when we come to Christ by faith and we choose to follow him as a genuine believer, yes, we should live obedient lives. We should accomplish great and wonderful things for the glory of God. But be sure you get it in the right order. How is it possible for even you and me to have assurance that we are under that marvelous grace of God that enables us to say, I know that, I know that, I know I'm a child of God and I will live in eternity in the kingdom of God. I'm in the spiritual kingdom of God now. How? Jesus is telling us. It's not bad works. Accomplishments. Pedigree. And Paul picked up on it in his theology. When he writes to the church at Ephesus in chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, he says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not by works, lest any man should boast. How is it that any of us have the assurance that we will inherit the kingdom of God Ladies and gentlemen, it's not by your qualifications and accomplishments. It is purely by the amazing grace of God. How is it that you came to hear the gospel that gives the good news that lost and wretched sinners bound for hell like you and me have an opportunity to be forgiven of all of our sins, to be adopted into the family of God and to wake up one day in the very presence of the Lord and know that we will be there for eternity. It's not by works. It's not by self-righteousness. It's by the grace of God and the faith that he gave us to put our faith and trust in the Son of God who died for us, who was resurrected, ascended into heaven, and he's coming back again. Amen? No doubt about it. I'll, I'll tell this story. I, I'm debated, but I felt like the Lord was putting it on my heart. One night I was on call as, as a chaplain at the hospital, at Forsyth Hospital. Got a call, probably about two in the morning. It's typically the calls came in back then. They said they had a young girl that was at Forsyth Hospital and they had a baby, her first. Didn't look good for the baby, so they asked if I could come over. And of course I did. I went over to the hospital and the doctor met me in the hallway and says, he shook his head and says, it's, it's just a matter of time. We're going to, as a precaution, we're going to transfer the baby over to Baptist because at that time, Baptist was on the hospital head of NICU and neonatal intensive care. Says our security guard would take the mother over there, but I think it'd be a good idea if you were to meet her there. And I said, well, I planned on doing that. So I made my way on over to Baptist Hospital and found the NICU. And at that time, the baby was waning, and the doctors knew that. 
They placed that little tiny, tiny baby. This girl was at most 13. Scared to death. I asked her, I said, honey, is there anybody? Do you have family here in town? And she said, well, my closest relatives are my mama. She's in Salisbury. And I, and I called her and explained to her mother. And her mother says, sir, I would love to be there, but I'm in, I live in a government project. No, no transportation. No way I can get there. So I lingered. And God brought back this scene to me, to my mind. I was thinking, what can I say? I said, ma'am, I said, you know, honey, I said, I'm a Christian. I believe with all my heart that Jesus Christ died for our sins and he's made a way for us to... To, to be saved and to go to heaven when we die. But I know also that the Lord taught that these tiny babies, that, that should they perish, that they will go to heaven. They will be in the presence of the Lord. She sat there holding that tiny little baby and, and, and this life is ebbing from her. Tears are streaming down her eyes. I, I, I look back at that so many times, folks. You just don't know. How, as I walked out of that hospital after the baby perished and they were taking the mother back, and I was walking out, I was just looking up into heaven. And I was thinking, isn't our God a great God? Isn't He a wonderful Savior? That He would provide not only for wretched sinners like me who have passed the age of accountability that needed. To have faith to believe in Jesus Christ, but He provided a way for me. But He provided a way for these precious infants. And such comfort came upon my heart. That's the Lord that we're talking about here. He wasn't impressed by the legalistic, self-righteous Pharisees and all the things that they would prop up. Oh no, He was impressed by the humble, those who are meek. Humble in spirit, who knew they desperately needed him, his mercy, and his grace. And folks, that's the message that we have to share. We're talking about the Great Commission study. That's the Great Commission. It's to a lost and dying world. There is hope. There is hope because of the grace of God to every person who will put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. I trust that all of you have made that decision if you've gotten to that point of maturity in your life. I pray if you haven't, if God is stirring your heart and Jesus said, no one comes to me, but the Father draw them. If God is pulling on your heart, drawing you, and you need to talk about this, you're not, you don't have the assurance of knowing that you are a kingdom citizen, that you'll live forever, that you have salvation. Listen, don't delay. You find Pastor Scott, you find me or Brother Mark or Tim, we'll be happy to talk with you, explore the scriptures with you so that you can have that assurance as well. Let's pray. Father God, we can't thank you enough for the powerful lessons that you teach us from your word about how great and glorious and wonderful, compassionate and merciful God you are. Lord, we thank you and praise you for your amazing grace and how that makes a difference for eternity for those who fall under that special grace before the age of accountability.
of those who are later coming to you by faith in Jesus Christ. Thank you for making it possible. Lord, let your Holy Spirit work and may your will be done and we'll give you the glory. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.